Final charges. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Paul leaves Timothy with some final exhortations, instructions, charges. The first is directed at the rich. Command them not to be high-minded or trust in uncertain riches. And the second is to reinforce Paul's earlier warnings to Timothy. Guard the gospel. Guide the people. Remember how the letter started. Paul reminded Timothy that he's been entrusted with a ministry in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And so the Lord is going to enable Timothy to do the work that's been entrusted to him in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul has given instructions about prayer, about modesty, about how we are to conduct ourselves as family Paul has given charges to Timothy about what it means to be a good minister, a godly minister, and a growing minister in chapter 4. Paul has given charges to the more mature saints, to the widows, to the church leaders, to servants, to troublemakers, and now to the rich and even the educated. So it begins to the wealthy man. He says in verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. And you might have tuned out as I was saying those words. As soon as he said, Command those who are rich, and you said, That's not me. So whatever is about to follow has... Little or nothing to do with me. But there are 7 billion people who live on the planet earth. And you're one of those 7 billion people. And if you get more than $2 a day, then you make more than 70% of the people on the planet earth. If you have running water, if you have a flush toilet, if you have a cell phone, if you have internet, then you are in the top 25% of everybody who live on the planet earth. Half of the world's wealth is concentrated on 1% of the human beings who live here. The United States of America has 5% of the world's population and consumes 70% of the world's goods. The chances are, if you're listening to me right at this very moment, that you have quite a bit more than 90% of the people who live on the planet Earth. The Lord Jesus warns us that it's possible to be rich in this present world, but not towards God. It is true that Americans, for the most part, are very, very rich compared to the rest of the world. But let's put things in perspective. Not only are we perhaps the richest country, we're also the most generous. And so we begin to understand something. When Paul is writing to the people at 
Ephesus, he's dealing with a group of people who were wildly and lavishly wealthy. Those of you who forget that Paul, again, is writing this to Timothy and he's pastoring the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is a harbor in what's now modern Turkey. And it was one of the most beautiful cities in the ancient world. If I were to liken it to a city in the, in, in the present world, it would be like San Francisco. It had a beautiful harbor and it had sloping hills and, and there was so much wealth that was concentrated in this one area. But sometimes wealthy people have their own set of difficulties and so when Paul commands Timothy, he says, command those who are rich in this present world. That word command carries with it the weight of a military command. But it isn't just an order that you bark. It isn't just tell them what they need to know. It seems the word means speak in such a way that you lace your conversation with elements of tenderness the word literally means to beg. It means to make an appeal. It means to beseech. What Paul is basically saying to Timothy is that when you're dealing with people who have extraordinary wealth, approach them in love, approach them in tenderness, make an urgent appeal. But make no mistake about it, there's also an expectation that the person will do exactly what God requires. And so he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to trust in uncertain riches. He knows the problem. Wealthy people have a tendency to trust their wealth. And so Paul says to Timothy, avoid pride embrace humility the next phrase literally reads command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches in the original language the phrase literally reads who set their hope on the uncertainty of riches the expression uncertain occurs only here in the Greek New Testament. And it means to convey a warning that in the grand scheme of things, if, you, if I were to put it in words that hopefully all of us can understand, there's two broad categories of reality. Things that are certain. Things that are uncertain. In the reality of the things that are uncertain, at the top of the uncertain list, you should place the word wealth. In what ways are riches uncertain? Because wealth on the surface appears to be valuable, dependable. People focus on wealth because they say, this is valuable, this is dependable, I can trust it, but with wealth comes danger. The danger that we might trust it rather than Christ. We know that for some, the desire for wealth is insatiable. Someone has likened riches to drinking salt water. Imagine you're stuck on a life raft out in the middle of the ocean and you're dying of thirst. Is it a good idea or bad idea to drink the ocean water? It's a bad idea. By the way, if you drink the ocean water, are you going to satisfy your thirst? Not only are you not going to satisfy your, your thirst, are you going to run a terrible risk? Yeah, the answer is yes. It was John Ruskin who was talking about a shipwreck of gold that they found off of San Francisco. And when the divers went down, they found a massive amount of gold. And around one person, they found he had ch chained to himself 200 pounds of gold. Now, how smart is that when the ship is going down? 
So the big question is, did he own that gold or did that gold own him? That's part of the point. Wealth makes promises that it can't keep. And sometimes wealth, instead of alleviating anxiety, increases anxiety. The pursuit of wealth sometimes includes making money, and then you wind up making it in a dishonest way or in a way that doesn't please the Lord. And so the preoccupation with wealth will sometimes give people a tendency to allow the preoccupation to control their life. And so Paul will add this wonderful statement, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. What's interesting about what Paul is saying is he's putting balance on the reality of of the admonition that he's making. The wealthy don't have to feel guilty. They don't have to be ashamed. And they certainly don't have to be condemned for their wealth. Paul points out that God has given all things richly for us to enjoy. All things. You mean including wealth? Yes. Riches are a gift from God. So we have to find a balance between self-enjoyment and bringing much-needed relief to a broken world or a recovering world or to broken people. The rich have every right to enjoy life and to enjoy wealth. But Paul adds, look what it says in verse 18, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. What will be the best way to combat pride and false dependence on wealth? Paul's answer, do good. Accumulate a portfolio of good deeds. Be generous Share sacrificially. Think about what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that generosity brings riches. Selflessness, sacrifice, generosity. That's how you accumulate wealth. Generosity is more than just giving money or goods or or even services, but also giving yourself in personal involvement in each other's lives. On Sunday, we're going to be talking about small groups, and then we're going to be launching small groups. We're going to be talking about what it means to minister to one another and encourage one another and be a part of one another's life. So doing good promotes a response. The idea isn't just simply to be helpful. The idea seems to be to be on the lookout to do something helpful. A willingness to share strikes a blow against pride and self-centeredness. Because the moment that you do something for Christ, the moment that you do something for someone else, guess what? You have this great and wonderful wonderful privilege. You get to forget about yourself, even if it's just for a moment. The most important thing in your life can't be you. So imagine if you wake up and all you think about is yourself and all you do is live for yourself and you go to bed at night thinking about yourself with just little bits and pieces of care and concern for others, staggered in between. We learn to live with less so that others can have more. And look closely at that phrase, willing to share. Isn't that one of the very first things that you learned as a child? Maybe the first conscious thing you remember your mother or grandmother saying You need to share. Now, you might have been an only child, so you never heard that word growing up. But if you had siblings and if you were around other people, at some point, someone is going to say to you, hey, you need to be willing to share. 
And by the way, Paul uses a word that relates to the word fellowship. Literally, the word willing to share translates a Greek word, koinikos. In its root, it includes the idea of sharing and willingness. It's a word that means to make resources available to one another. Some of you are familiar with the word koinonia, which means the fellowship that you have with one another. But in this form, it's a word that means the kind of fellowship that makes minimum yourself available to others. And so, being rich in good works doesn't just simply necessarily increase the bottom line on your financial statement, but in the long run, you become the asset. You become God's treasure. You become God's treasure chest. And so in direct proportion, not simply for your willingness to give and your ability to give, you become the asset that the Lord sees as the, as the manifestation or expression of generosity. And so he says in verse 19, storing up for yourselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. The Bible doesn't teach that you are generous in order to obtain eternal life, but rather you're generous because you have eternal life. Erwin Lutzer at Calvary South Denver, or not South Denver, that's our church, Calvary Albuquerque, this last Sunday, he said, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is sin. That's the only thing that you throw in the kitty. Hey, here's what I have to offer. Wickedness, rebellion, disobedience. And so God's able to provide everything. So, Laying up wealth that lasts forever. In five short commands, look what Paul has done. Number one, he says, don't be high-minded. Number two, don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. Number three, do trust God. So we have two don'ts. Don't be high-minded. Number two, don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. And there's three do's. Do trust in God. Do good. Be rich in good works. Do lay up treasures in heaven. So just in very brief, because we've got just a few more things that I want to cover, but in brief, I want to talk a little bit about the temptations on earth and, and those five things. What does that mean, by the way, to be high-minded? The word haughty actually translates a very long compound Greek word, hypsophroneo. It's a word that's found only here in the Greek New Testament. There was another Greek word that was used in the common culture and common conversation called megalophroneo, which meant high-minded. But some scholars actually believe that Paul has sort of made up a word. He's combined certain ideas together for the most amount of impact. Paul probably adopted this word because the word doesn't just mean arrogant, although it does mean that. It doesn't just mean haughty. It does mean that. It doesn't just mean proud. It includes that. But this is the kind of pride of possessions. This is the kind of pride where I put on my watch and it's a citizen watch, and a person says, mine's a Rolex. <laughs> and you go, hey, what time is it on your Rolex? It's 7.51. Hey, on, on my citizen watch, it's 7.51 as well. I mean, really. How much did the sheets on your bed cost? $19.95 at pennies. Mine cost $1,000. And you go, what kind of an idiot would pay $1,000 for sheets? 
But there are certain people that, for whatever reason, the pride of possessions elevates them above everybody else. And that's what he's warning about. The temptation elevates the rich to believe that just simply by virtue of wealth, they're morally or spiritually superior. That somehow wealth generates virtue. One wise rabbi said, haughtiness towards men is rebellion to God. And rightfully so. Pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. Spurgeon used to say, pride is a stab at deity. It is an attack upon the undivided glory of God. Pride becomes an opportunity Instead of pointing people to the Lord, you draw attention to yourself. And that's the stab that that Spurgeon was talking about. Here's the challenge. The challenge is when we think that wealth makes us truly different. And nothing could be further from the truth biblically. Yet Augustine wrote, quote, We all bow down before wealth. Wealth is that which the multitude of men pay an instinctive homage. They measure happiness by wealth, and by wealth they measure respectability. It is a homage resulting from a profound faith that with wealth he may do all things. He wrote that in the 4th century AD. What has changed? Nothing. Thomas Brooks rightly said, quote, there are three things that earthly riches can never do. They can never satisfy divine justice. They can never pacify divine wrath, nor can they ever quiet a guilty conscience. Until these things are done, man is undone. No matter how wealthy you are, can it make your sin go away? Can it absolve your conscience? Can it make you virtuous? Dwight Moody used to say, quote, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. And I think that that's exactly right. Once again, we're reminded that a person can't trust wealth and God at the same time. You're going to Love the one and hate the other or embrace the one and despise the other. And so he talks about temptations on earth but treasures in heaven. Well, how in the world do I do that? I have a checking account here on the earth. I have a savings account. I have a retirement account. How do I open an account in heaven? Well, In order to open an account in heaven, you have to have Jesus sign the application. We open an account in heaven the moment that we trust Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. We trust the Lord. And since we reject the uncertainty of riches, we trust the Lord and we we trust our past to God's mercy and our present to God's love and our future to God's providence. Spurgeon said, trust Jesus and you're saved. Trust yourself and you're lost. And so we cultivate a heart of generosity because we trust God. We cultivate sacrificial giving because we trust God. We give wealth away. We use our wealth for doing good. And by the way, no amount of good deeds can make you a good person. We must be good in order to do good. Good deeds don't make you good. In order to do good the kind of good that really matters, that really matters in the eyes of God. It it has to come from a heart that's focused on the Lord. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, Do not lay up treasures for yourself on the earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's Jesus talking about? One thing appears to be physical. The other thing appears to be spiritual. When he's talking about laying up treasure, he's asking and answering the question, how do we translate what's valuable here to what's valuable there? And Jesus gives us the answer. Again, it's going to be selflessness and sacrifice and generosity. So he will give the final charge in these last two verses. Look what he says in verse 20. Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. In this chapter, Paul told Timothy, flee evil, follow what's good, verse 11. Fight the good fight of faith, verse 12. Faithfully fulfill your ministry, verses 13 and 14. Warn the rich, verses 17 through 19. Don't trust money. Help other people. Reject godless philosophies. So now Timothy is told to guard, to keep the things that's been committed to his trust. What are these things? What are the priceless privileges? Paul has already told Timothy, it's the sound words of truth. It's the gospel of God. It's the message of grace. It's the reality of how a person is saved because of what Jesus has done. And so, Paul tells Timothy that it's the sound words of truth. It's the gospel of God. It's the message of grace. Let nothing cause you to deviate from the gospel message of the grace of God. That's what one Bible writer writes, and I think that that's exactly right. What Paul has given to Timothy, Timothy is supposed to give to others. And that's part of the point. Absent corruption. Absent innovation. Absent admixture, that means mixing other stuff. The essentials of faith and the gospel aren't to be twisted or corrupted or polluted or perverted. The essentials of the faith and the gospel aren't to be divided. We are possessors of faith, but we are also trustees of the faith. So when you come to Christ, when you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, you aren't just simply the possessor of eternal life. You are entrusted with that which brought eternal life to you. The message of hope, the message of the gospel, grace and mercy. And so this is in part the value of this letter and this study. Everything that we've learned in the Bible study, as we've opened up our Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, everything in the letter, all of the instructions have been entrusted to you. For the purpose of entrusting it to others. And so Paul tells Timothy to guard the gospel. Elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 it says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Paul, in talking to the Thessalonians, said, we didn't do this for the purpose of making you happy, and neither did we do it as an excuse to line our pockets. 
Other people might question our motives. Other people might question our sincerity. Paul's position is God knows the truth about why we're doing what we're doing. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. You've been entrusted with this. You've been entrusted with the instructions and the commands and the charges. Paul will give a series of descriptions Avoid and abandon false teaching. He basically says, Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions. This is a series of descriptors. What Paul is describing when he says profane and vain babbling He's talking about what he's been talking about for several chapters. Avoid false teachers and avoid false teaching. In what sense? This is a description of false teaching. This is profane and vain. The word profane, biblos, it means common. It means irreverent. It means godless talk. The word vain means empty. It means meaningless. One writer, Kenneth Weiss, uses the term empty voices, which I like. And the reason why I like it is because it reminds me of almost every talk show host on television. It's not just empty heads it's empty voices. Why are they empty voices? Because they endlessly talk about every conceivable, imaginal, imaginary thing, um, all things, everything except what really matters. It's unbelievable how much time could be devoted to things that don't really matter. The endless conversations on morality, spirituality, political reality, culture, climate. Paul calls these things godless chatter. The world offers an endless conversation on much that matters little. Truth matters little. Little matters much. Godlessness matters most in that world. Empty voices. What do they want to talk about? We want to talk about anything other than the problem of sin. And we want to talk about anything other than Jesus as being the solution to the problem of sin. We want to talk about virtue. And we want to talk about morality. And we want to talk about peace. And we don't want to have um, shootings in our schools. And we don't want to have a world that is deeply divided. We want all of the benefits of virtue. But we don't want to exercise virtue. That's what Paul is talking about. He adds to the list contradictions. Look what it says. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions. What does that mean? The word means those things that are opposed. And in this context, it means the words that stand in opposition to Christ, to the gospel of Christ, to the apostolic teaching, to the message of Paul, to the gospel. Well, does this mean that we ignore hard questions or difficulties in the Bible? I don't think that that's what it means. It doesn't mean that we can never have a question. It doesn't mean that we, we can't try and figure out things that seem disconnected or paradoxical. The word opposition is literally the word in the Greek language, antithesis. Most of you know that word, anti, thesis. Anti means to stand against something. 
thesis means the premise, or in Paul's case, the premise of the truth or the facts. We might even use this word. It is that supposition or up it is that supposition or assumption that stands in opposition to the truth about God, the truth about Christ, the truth about salvation, the truth about the death of Jesus, the truth about the resurrection of Jesus, the truth about Jesus coming again, the truth about what Paul has written. So what is being condemned is false knowledge of men that stand against the truth or the facts, whether of God or true science. And when I use the word true science, I mean that which is a fact that is consistent with reality. So what is Paul's charge to Timothy? Take everything that's empty. Take everything that's meaningless Take all of the empty voices and turn away from them. Turn away from them. Paul knew that much of what poses as true knowledge is not true knowledge at all. But what if it comes from important people? What if it comes from educated people? What if it comes from scholarly people? What if it comes from expert people? What if important, educated, scholarly, expert people are the empty voices? Is it possible that an educated, scholarly, expert person will tell you, the Bible's not true. Jesus isn't the Lord. You are the bizarre result of unguided processes through a series of circumstances where nothing became something and then that something organized itself into inorganic material which organized itself into organic material which organized itself into living material which organized itself into thinking material. How did it all happen? By accident. The Bible says that you're created by God in the image of God and that you have a creator who loves you, who's designed you to live in the world in which you... Oh, that's nonsense. The charge is strong. It says, turn away. Don't embrace their views. Reject false philosophies, reject false psychologies, reject false or pseudoscience, reject false religions. Cults will claim a Christian character. Cults will claim biblical truth. And then they neglect the truth or reject the truth. By the way, how can you tell is if something is false. One Bible teacher writes, quote, by the word of God, by the revelation and record of Christ, by the truth of God, if the science or knowledge stands in opposition to the word of God, turn away from it. That's what he says. Well, does this mean Christians have to plead guilty to charges of blind faith, anti-intellectualism, or anti-science? I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps some do. Some, maybe some are anti-intellectual. Maybe some are anti-science. But guess what? Christians don't claim to know everything about everything. But Christians do claim that what Christ says is true. And it's true every time. A week ago, on Thursday, we had a funeral. And at the funeral, I, I told a, the several hundred people who had gathered, I said, that heaven is a real place. And after the service, a lady came up to me and said, you know, when you said that heaven is a real place, the lady next to me 
hit me right in the ribs and then looked at me and said, I don't know if I believe that's true. And the lady looked at her and said, you better believe it's true. Not in a threatening way, but in the reality of the alternative. If heaven isn't a real place, then Jesus is a liar because Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be. And he said, and I told you these, these things not in order to make you happy or to give you false hope. He said, if it were not true, I would have told you. Can you imagine the agony and the pain and the difficulty when you are left with the alternative. And that is when you're dead, you're dead, you're D-E-A-D, dead. I've told you the story of a funeral that I did long time ago where tragically a mother lost her precious, beautiful daughter. She didn't believe in the Bible. She didn't believe in God. She didn't believe in heaven. And I opened up the Bible and I spoke to her about these things that the Bible says. Offering hope and grace that there's a God who cares and that this God is real. And she looked at me and she said, I don't believe you. What she said next was even more heartbreaking. She said, I guess I'm going to have to bury my little girl and just pretend like she never existed. Can you imagine the pain and the emptiness and the darkness that wells up inside of you? You see, false teaching and false teachers aren't just simply guilty of opposing the revelation of God. They are guilty of dismantling hope. Here's what we know. William MacDonald writes, quote, Actually, no true finding of science will ever contradict the Bible because the secrets of science were placed in the universe by the same one who wrote the Bible, God himself. But many so-called facts of science are in reality nothing but unproved theories. On this date in history, Louis Pasteur was born. He was influenced by a person who, while delivering babies at a hospital, he, he was performing autopsies on plague victims and then delivering babies. And he discovered that when he didn't wash his hands, sometimes those babies would catch whatever it was that, that, that the plague victims died for, from. And so he began washing his hands. And the medical establishment of his day thought that he was insane and that it was stupid and that it was irresponsible to wash your hands so much so that they drove him out of the medical practice and he died in an insane asylum. Within a generation, Louis Pasteur discovered my microbes and the idea of germs and that germs cause disease. You see, the reality is that what science says today might change tomorrow. But real science, true science, is going to affirm what the Bible says. William MacDonald writes, But many so-called facts of science are in reality nothing but unproved theories. Any such hypothesis which contradicts the Bible should be rejected, unquote. And that's exactly right. Paul doesn't have a problem with science knowledge. He has a problem with what's falsely called knowledge. By the word, way, the word translated knowledge, noseos, you know that word. We get the word Gnostic from it. It incorporates several elements of understanding. Paul isn't against understanding. He isn't against facts. He isn't against evidence. But we turn away from all false claims to the truth and all forms of false teaching that are novel, unbiblical, about Christ, about salvation, about eternity. And in verse 21, it says, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. 
Grace be with you. Amen. Paul points out that some so-called Christians have abandoned the faith by professing it. The it that it's talking about is the false teaching and the false teachers and the false knowledge and the false information. Some have said, rather than reject the false teacher, the false teaching and the false information, they embraced it. The word stray literally means to wander away. It literally translates the word missed the mark. In our culture and society, we would use the term wound up at the wrong destination. You're supposed to stay on a particular path and you leave that path and you wind up lost. You know what's wonderful about this passage? The good news about this passage is the way that it's written and its construction, it's not a permanent condition. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. But the implication seems to be if you've made your way off the beaten path, there's still hope. You can get on the right path, going in the right direction. If you've lost your way, if you've turned around, if you've embraced false teachers or false teaching, if people have told you things that aren't true and left you empty... You can get back on the road that's marked Calvary. You can see a cross set in front of you. You can go back to the place where you belong. Those who have made a false profession, they can repent. They can return. How many stories have you read of so-called Christians seduced by materialism, rationalism, communism, mysticism, scientism, liberalism, whatever ism you want to come up with? And it left them shipwrecked. Some have followed the false teachers and the false teaching and they've wasted valuable time on nonsense. But it's not too late. You can turn around. You can go in the right direction. And so Paul closes with his trademark statement, grace be with you, amen. You might read that and think, oh, what a lovely way to say goodbye. Hey, grace be with you. Some people read this and they think of Star Trek, live long and prosper, but it's way more than that. Paul isn't simply saying goodbye. Whenever Paul uses the word grace, he's thinking about a costly gift that's been given by God in Christ Jesus to you. When he says, grace be with you, He's talking about the kind of grace that's been provided by Jesus in a sacrificial death that offers you love and hope in eternity. Grace sustains us. Grace is given to us. And right when it seems that we've run out of grace, God replaces grace with more grace. We secure grace through the sacrifice and redemption of Jesus. This is the grace that has its origins in the heart of God. And it has both the beginning and the end hidden in the heart of Jesus. Paul has given us a lot to think about. He's basically said, correct, incorrect teaching. Deal lovingly and fairly with all people in the church. 
The church isn't simply a social club for Christians. Rather, it's a place where Jesus can be honored and glorified and the saints edified. This becomes a place where people should hear the gospel and have hope in their heart. And remember Paul's charges to Timothy. You stay true to Jesus. Resist legalism. Embrace grace. Refute false doctrine. Promote right doctrine. Promote, exalt Jesus. Provide healthy fellowship. And so, we end where we began. Paul in the beginning told Timothy, Take good care of what's been entrusted to you. Remember all that Jesus has done for you. And stay true to him. Refuse pride. Trust God. It's not good enough to just simply resist evil. You have to Promote what's good, do no harm, and then make every effort to do what's right when you can. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for these instructions, corrections, helps. Lord, as we begin to think about what it means to be a church and what it means to be people in the church. And Lord, again, I pray for that person who, for whatever reason, might have found himself or herself off the beaten path, sidelined, distracted, disconnected. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would remind them of your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy. That there's forgiveness and hope that's available through Christ. And that they would come to you and believe you and then walk with you on a journey that will lead to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.